gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett. Je m'appelle Michelle Lilienthal. I'm gonna call you Michelle from now on. Um, <laughs> and this is us. We're in we're in room. We have Scotch. We're talking about book. Uh, <laughs> as you can obviously tell, I'm not looking at the script for this one. I'm just freeforming it, and it's going great. Um, Yay! Today we are drinking, we are continuing to drink Ben Riach, the Smoky 12 Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Three cask matured, uh, mm-hmm. blended, created under Rachel Berry, Master Blender, who's uh, Ben Riach, the 12, uh, stood us in very good stead last time, and uh, um, now we're drinking this one. Right. Uh, she's, that, she's become a, a, a demigod among us with a, a lowercase g. Thank you. That's also a reference to something we discussed before the last episode that I don't think I'm going to be able to include. So, <laughs> uh, that's okay. That's just for us, I guess. Um, just for us. It'll all it'll all be in the memoir when uh, right. uh, when you and I co-write Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. The memoir. Oh, I thought we were assigning that to a future master's student. Well, the master student can't write a memoir. Ghostwrite? I mean, no doubt they will. Right. Sort of in a, a Veyaneda fashion. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, future grad students. That was not a that was not an insult. Please don't slander our name because we because we did a joke at you. Um, anyway, what are we doing? I guess Karen needs to come in and read the rules. Hey, Karen. Yeah, that'd be good. Well, now you messed it up. Hey, Karen. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. Uh, <laughs> there was no way I could correct that other than pointing out that you messed up the thing I was doing. Um, <laughs> so I'm sorry I had to throw you under the bus like that, but... Um, uh, I've had worse. <laughs> you've had worse from me. Um, it's true. Yes, so... Uh, Michael, what is the name of the book that we're reading? 
uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel by Rabelais. Uh, or if you want to be pedantic, it's Pantagruel and Gargantua, Pantagruel and Pantagruel, and maybe Pantagruel. Well, Michael, uh, thanks a lot because you did get out ahead of the pedantic joke I was gonna do. Um, I knew you are I right. Would. We need to. We do need to clink glasses and uh, do all that. I did forget. Uh, here's Munyurai. Lachaim. All right. Um. Yeah, well, okay, to be extremely pedantic, we are not <laughs> reading a book. We are reading five books. Um, one is called Pantagruel, one is called Gargantua, and the others are simply called the third book, the fourth book, and the fifth book. Though I think you are right because, like, it is the third book of Pantagruel and the fourth book of Pantagruel, etc. Now, mm-hmm. if you want to be truly pedantic, um, the first of the five books we are reading is called pantagruel the horrifying and dreadful deeds and prowesses of the most famous pantagruel king of the dispodes son of the great giant gargantua newly composed by maitre alcifribus nassier nice my so my title page uh on that one does have a, a an abbreviated title i guess Sure. Pantagruel, king of the Dipsides, with his heroic acts and prowesses, composed by M. Alcofribus. Alcofribus. Alcofribus, sure. So the Meta, or M, I think is just master, like, yeah, just an honorific. Um, do you know who Alcofribus Nassier is? I, I think I saw it somewhere, but I don't remember. Um, it's just an anagram for Francois Rabelais nice yeah um i love that so right um yeah and so michael you did you did doubly get out ahead of my pedantry because i promised last episode we were gonna dive into like the actual texts of these books now that we've had one special episode completely for play setting and then one main episode that uh it wasn't exactly place setting, but it was definitely much more general discussion. Um, now, I did, in thinking about how to how to do these episodes, um, one thing I considered was just taking these books one at a time, in the sense that there are five five individual books here published at you know different times and in different places and so forth. And um, the fifth book is probably the least interesting and the most questionable as far as whether it is Rabelais so I had thought we could do like one book per episode and then kind of sneak the fifth book in the last one um Mm -hmm. that's far now I I should have known this was a foolish plan even before we recorded the the last episode because that is far too organized of a uh um manner to expect to proceed for this podcast um Mm -hmm. but I I do want to jump in at what will be uh michael in your edition um and in in most editions will be book two um uh the book pantagruel or um you know the the long title that i just uh um mentioned uh michael when you read did you read in publication order or did you read in the order that the the volume you had was printed 
I followed the volume. Sure. Now, since you were, especially since you were reading the Urquhart edition, which has been very specifically uh, um, influential, like, that makes perfect sense. Um, Mm -hmm. But we mentioned this in the play setting edition that most most editions publish Gargantua and then Pantagruel. Gargantua is the first book because chronologically it takes place first. Um, Screech and those of us who... uh, insists that the magician's nephew should only be read as the sixth book of the chronicles of narnia despite taking place chronologically first um tend to argue that that Pantagruel makes more sense to read before gargantua um you know not it's it's no no more fruitful of a debate really than the whole uh uh what is the first novel thing but um that's just why I uh, why I wanted to uh, dive in with Pantagruel, Michael. Like, I guess you know, you can you can include Gargantua as well. But like, reading these first this first volume or two, just just fresh, just new as something you were diving into. Like, oh what was that experience like for you? Um, how do I say trippy? <laughs> Um, so the first chapter of Gargantua, um, in this edition is two pages and most of the, most of the chapters are fairly short. Uh, and this follows after an author's prologue, um, which is pretty funny. Um, and he basically just says, it's don't take this seriously. It's funny. Just laugh and drink and laugh and drink, (laughs) uh, drink some more and maybe laugh again. Um, and then he goes into um, Gargantua itself before then getting to chapter two. And that's where I think I realized, oh, this is the kind of book I'm reading. Um, <laughs> because in chapter two of Gargantua, it's um, I, I don't know how original the, the headings or the titles are. But in, in this edition, it says the antidoted fan for luches or a galamatia of extravagant conceits found in an ancient monument Uh, and then it's a long poem the whole chapter is a long poem and i started reading it and i i think i read like the first two stanzas and went what (laughs) started over tried reading again read through the whole thing went back to the beginning said what and grabbed the alternative translation that i have by burton raffle um, to look and see if a different translation would make more sense to me. And I noticed that there is a footnote from M.A. Screech uh, in the uh, translation by Burton Raffle that says, we've understood almost nothing of this. <laughs> <laughs> At which point I went, oh, okay. <laughs> sure, yeah. Got it. Um so that's that that really informed my attitude for the rest of the the book. Sure. Um where if I didn't understand something, I didn't let it bother me. Um and instead I just accepted what I did understand and sought out the humor. Sure. In it. Sure, sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I genuinely think especially for a first read of any kind whether you're you know someone who like 
speaks and reads English and that's your only qualification mm-hmm. coming to a translation or whether you're like a scholar of of a uh, 16th century French like I think the first mm-hmm. time you read this book that's exactly the attitude that you have to bring to it um mm-hmm. you know I think a lot of uh you know like some people depending on their background and, and training and so forth like w- that that what they get out of it part will be greater than others but um I think everybody sure. is the same in that that's in order, especially if you're going to read the whole thing, if you're not going to give up somewhere along the way, I think that's a, the exact attitude that you just have to take um, mm-hmm. in in reading this. Um, yeah. And then, you know, as, as I went on reading, um, I think I mentioned this in our place setting episode, that, like, this is, uh, like, of all the books we've read, this is the one that almost most justifiably would warrant getting us the explicit tag on an episode. Just by virtue um, of what we have to say in order to... Uh, right. Uh, yeah, in order to talk about it. Yes. Right, because almost straight off the bat, you've got the the, the sexual humor right. and bathroom humor and... It's all over the place, and it doesn't stop. Right. And so, you know, we, we mentioned Music Man, um, the pick a little, tuck a little bit, and I knew that. Right. Um, but I guess I had sort of dismissed that as being um, how, uh, how do I say this politely? Like, <laughs> le- well, let's say legalists. <laughs> sure would would come to literature in general sure um and just like oh, you're just you're just finding something to to be upset about like the the i don't know the the way um books get banned all the time it's like you're just one sure. of the people who bans books right um not realizing quite how much was actually present in this book yeah yeah um you know, yeah, I obviously uh, am very much against the banning of books. Uh, right. Period. You know, uh, I, you never, know, I, it never goes the way the book banner wants it to go. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm even hesitant to uh, uh, make any obvious exceptions. Like, obviously, if I could snap my fingers and... Uh, um, turn every copy of Mein Kampf into dust such that it never existed, you know, maybe I would, but like, even sure. even in such extreme examples, like exactly what you just said, it, it never goes the way you want it to go. So, yeah, but that said, it is like, and this, you know, it's a similar experience when you read uh, Chaucer too, where it's like, sure. oh, oh my, like there is <laughs> some stuff in here that like, you know, I feel like if I was had say a twelve year old that I was that I was responsible for, I don't know that I'd want them to be to be reading this particular story. Right. You know, stuff like that. Like, um, you know, partly we have this, I think, in in America these days based on what conception of history we have, we have this like generally accepted notion that um you know the victorians were very prudish and um sort of 
literature, among other things, got sort of dirtier the farther after the Victorian era, you know, you go. Mm-hmm. But to some extent, that's also true backwards, like the farther back from the Victorian yeah. era you go. Um, and, you know, that's obviously a very broad strokes kind of statement. Uh, there's lots of there's lots of filth in the in Victorian England, if you know where to look for it. But, um, you know, the yeah, it's like what's considered acceptable as far as things to even talk about let alone to uh you know joke about or or portray like Mm -hmm. um really doesn't go in the kind of progression that you know one might one might think um yeah yeah uh though screech does mention um uh at some point that uh i think it's in his introduction um his general introduction um that uh i forgot what i was gonna say um Mm. screech mentions oh that this uh i'm not sure which which book or books but like gargantuan panagruel was read aloud to the king of france Mm. um oh and you know the Basically, Screech was saying like nothing that was that was in this book was considered sort of inappropriate to read aloud to the King of France, presumably in like at least a semi-public, you know, um, uh, whatever milieu location, right, etc. Um, so yeah, like that's that's interesting, right? Um, like. Like I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, right, because like, like, was it? Would you read porn in front of the king of France? Like, was that appropriate? Like, without further context right. like that, it's hard to say. But I think what right. Screech was implying or was, was it that just like subtle enough. Right. I think what could... Screech was implying, or maybe even says, is that like you had to have a certain decorum if you were reading something in the royal presence. Sure. Like it it i i get the impression it certainly was not just like an anything goes kind of a kind right. of a um thing um now i guess I've, I've been trying to think about like how to uh um sort of talk about these books mm-hmm. um and and i guess it does actually make some sense to um sort of talk about these two books uh together um obviously character wise gargantua is pantagruel's father um right and you know there's there's a lot of connections made there by by rabelais explicitly um so both books are the the two books are are parallel in a lot of ways like some people have uh essentially described gargantua as like a rewrite of pantagruel where rabelais kind of knew what he was doing better like pantagruel was kind of a a um an experiment and and rabelais didn't necessarily know exactly what he was doing he just kind of dashed it off whereas gargantua was like oh okay now i actually understand what this craft is and what i can do with it and sort of rewriting pantagruel uh with that extra sort of extra knowledge or whatever um but as far as as far as you can tell sort of a plot um they both they both cover pretty similar territory um 
I think both of them have sort of a, uh, um, what am I trying to say? Like a genealogy section. They both sort of trace them probably in, in something of like a biblical, you know, like a, a satire on like the book of numbers or, or something like that, sort of a mm-hmm. biblical way, which I mean, to be fair, also like lives of medieval you know kings and and chronicles of medieval kings and so forth would also have very similar things right or yeah. you know chronicles in the ancient world whatever king you're talking about you trace them back through the line of king kingly ancestors usually back to like a god or a right. a demigod some kind of some kind of legendary hero um well there there is a genealogy of pantagruel in chapter one right that's right. what i'm saying i think i think in both oh, okay both pantagruel and in gargantua both have that for their oh, respective okay. characters okay I, I i don't remember the one for gargantua gargantua but, i mean it like, may just be more sort of like it may be a little bit more tenuous it may be more like what uh, you know just who his father was or something um sure but like I, I definitely looked at the the genealogy and I I made a note of the names that I recognized. Oh sure. Um, and some that like might maybe maybe I recognize too. Um, so like um, it's yeah, book two, chapter one is is what I've got it listed as, which is book one, chapter one, uh, in publication order. But um, the first one I noticed, well, first of all, is that the time of the flood is mentioned. Sure. Um, uh, Fairy Broth uh, begat Hertali, that was a brave eater of pottage and reigned in the time of the flood. Uh, and then two lines later, Nembroth begat Atlas, that with his shoulders kept the sky from falling. So we're, we've got this biblical uh, timeline and then mythology mixed right. in. Yes, yes. Um, which is a theme that goes on. The next line is uh, Goliath. I don't know if that's supposed to be Goliath or not. Sure. But it's there. A um, few lines later, you've got Polyphemus, yes. um, which is the Cyclops that's in the Odyssey, right? Um, which is it's great. A few lines later, um, the next one I noticed uh, and recognized was Briarius that had a hundred hands. Sure. One of the Titans sure. from Greek mythology. So Greek mythology itself is just being twisted and turned on its head. It's all over the place. Right. Um, doesn't actually fit with the the mythology it's just kind of thrown in where it where it works right yes. uh and later you've got one um who fought against alexander the great um so we've, we've got maybe a little more solidity in the timeline there right and so like over those lines that's several thousand years that yes. it has um in like what 20 lines maybe right um it's pretty great uh, a few lines later, several lines later, you get Sisyphus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and that, that continues, who begat the Titans, <laughs> of whom Hercules was born. <laughs> right. Mythology is just being, I don't know, uh, just run rampant with. Um, I think that's the last one I noticed, uh, sure. particularly until we get finally down to Grangusier, Gargantua, and Pantagruel. Right. Um, um, so looking, so just just as an interesting parallel, um, looking at the beginning of Gargantua, um, 
uh, he basically sort of does the same thing, but like in sort of a meta way because he's already written it at the beginning of Pantacruel. Um, so in at least in the Screech translation, the first lines of chapter one um, of Gargantua. To learn of the ancient lineage from which Gargantua descended to us, I refer you to the great Pantagruelian Chronicle. In it you will hear mm. more fully of how the giants were born into our world, and how Gargantua the father of Pantagruel sprang from them in a direct line. So you will not be put out if I do not go into it uh, at present. Um, <laughs> so then what he what he does is like he kind of pontificates on the whole idea of genealogy. Um, mm-hmm. He says, would to God that every man could trace his own ancestry as certainly from Noah's Ark down to this our age. I think that many today are emperors, kings, dukes, princes, and popes on this earth who are descended from pardon mongers or hodmen in vineyards. <laughs> um, just as there are, on the contrary, many beggars in workhouses who are descended by blood and lineage from great kings and emperors. Um, and then he kind of traces the transfer of kingdoms and empires, starting with the Assyrians to the Medes, the Macedonians, the Romans, the Greeks, and then the Greeks to the French. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just, just got to yeah, get that little bit of nationalism in there. Also, it's interesting that he, he traces the Macedonians to the Romans and the Romans to the Greeks. Like, the way I learned history was kind of kind of yep. the opposite of, of that mm-hmm. particular... Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um... And then, of course, he says, to enable you to understand me, who am talking to you now, I think that I'm descended from some rich king or prince of former times. For never have I seen a man with a greater passion than I have for being rich and a king. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's, oh, that, see, that's an example of some of, like, the, the, I, I, maybe the, the highest part of his his humor right i don't know because like he's and i don't mean that necessarily as the the best because he's got like the highs and the lows of humor right um and they're all the best right um but yeah that's yeah yeah for sure um so you know again sort of sort of drawing the parallels between uh mm-hmm. between Panagruel and gargantua um uh, so again they both they both begin with some some gesture at uh uh genealogy at least and then right um you know they both talk about the childhood of their respective um uh heroes mm-hmm. um there there is then a section on education in both of them and then in both of them, something recalls them to, like, they get sent away for education. Um, and then something mm-hmm. recalls them to their former kingdom where they have to fight, basically. Um, in, in sort of the climax, if if such a thing is is something if, we if can there is a climax. speak about. Yeah, yeah, the Aristotelian climax, the, the classical climax in both right. of them does involve sort of a war. Um it, in both of them it's mm-hmm. like arguably a stupid or preventable war which i think is is kind of a a running theme in rabelais is that like the violence is often either stupid or it's engaged in for like recreation sake like this its own sake mm. um or and or it's preventable like 
right one to three of those three things is often true in rabelais i think um and i don't know to me on on this this reread this being the second time i've i've read a translation of gargantuan pantagruel um some of the thoughts on education in both of these books were some of the most interesting um Mm. this of course being a period very concerned with education as Mm -hmm. you know the printing press makes education more available and um new ideas or sort of reawakened ideas are being imported you know from from elsewhere you know in in the in the renaissance and you know there's a in, in a lot of ways like the educational system that we think of in certainly Europe and and the United States today um, is Mm -hmm. founded in this period. Like a lot of the, a lot of the base, you know, philosophies and ideas come from this period. Um, So it just kind of seems like everyone in this period has opinions about education. (laughs) Excuse me. And I I find it very interesting that um, uh, in Gargantua specifically, um, Gargantua's first tutor makes him a fool, right? And then sure. uh, it's like his second tutor, you know, kind of kind of comes along and, and corrects all of that. So I'm sure right. that you know, and I'm sure this this work has been done, but I'm sure that there's you know stuff in there about um, uh, I don't know, you know, just like what what makes good education, what makes bad education, and and yeah. You know, um it seems like a very mineable section um there's another uh thesis assignment we're giving to yeah, grad students exactly mm-hmm. um so but the unless michael i don't know if you had any any thoughts about the education sections um i mean i certainly noticed them uh it struck me as parallel to things like um hamlet um yeah who gets sent off for education um other other things like that um i i guess i don't have anything deeper much deeper sure than that. no that's that's uh just fine um so uh i guess as i'm you know we can obviously bounce around here and and um, yeah uh so forth but like the um other most interesting part of these two books again for me on this reread comes um towards the end of gargantua um okay book two for me book one for you um starting around chapter well it's chapter 50 in my edition i guess it's 52 in some editions um and uh the uh specifically the 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 section that revolves around the abbey of thelema um Mm -hmm. i thought was very interesting now partly this is like uh i don't know if there's a term for like when something is more interesting now than when it was written because of stuff that has happened in the intervening times but like thelema is um it's a term that gets co-opted later Mm. uh i'm trying to yeah okay so um michael are you familiar with alistair crowley um vaguely yes okay so 
you may or may not know, Crowley is a 20th century sort of mystic occultist. Um, he did nickname himself at one point 666 the Beast. Um, That's right. Kind of, yep. kind of tells you where his, you know, his uh, uh, edgelord flag was planted, um, if we want to put it that way. Um, you know, he's he's very much he's very provocative. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of like debate about how much of his like you know mm-hmm. devil worship stuff was like performative slash theatrical versus how much of it was like seriously trying to you know get in touch with these these sorts of things um you know mm-hmm. uh there are as many opinions about those questions as there are um uh people who have read about him um what's objectively true is that he did form a weird sex cult um and i think it's pretty certain that like there's some stuff with like underage people and and you know stuff that that went on that um it's it's i think like pretty universally accepted as not not great um mm-hmm. you know i don't i don't want to get too much more into into that because uh that's that's not the podcast we're doing but um right the my point is i believe it was sort of the the system or the the set of teachings that he developed um he called thelema um mm. and i believe it it draws pretty directly back to uh rabelais um the i'm trying to remember if this if this phrase comes up here but the uh um uh trying to um anyway the the phrase the phrase in crowley's writings was uh do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law um right and that became this very like you know um i don't know sort of sort of a uh um what am I trying to say? Sort of Philosophy. became a yeah. Well, it, it it's like a philosophical rejection of because Crowley came out of like the you know the world of Jude the Obscure, right? The world of um, yeah, uh, uh you know, very ordered, very uh, uh, legalistic. Probably is a fair word to use. You know, sort of staunch Stoic Anglicanism and um, do what thou wilt was kind of a a uh, rejection of that um yeah it is it's um i i was just finding it here um it is in chapter 55 in my edition of gargantua 57 in some editions um Mm uh and it's a um you know basically like i i think it's pretty obvious if you if you do read this that like Crowley was completely wrong in how he understood what the whole this whole idea meant um and it's also sure. like uh uh it's it's very it's one of the the most lutheran passages um 
in fact. Sure. So, um, uh, Michael, I don't know if you have anything you wanna you wanna comment about what we've said already, but well, all all I'm thinking here is what what you're saying is. Rabelais was being fairly Lutheran, and Crowley was trying too hard. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, I now I'm gonna have to dig that out and make sure it's in there. Uh, okay. Um. Right. Okay. So. Uh, yes, but that that rule is there, and and it's in chapter fifty-seven in mine that um, it says in all their rule and strictest tie of their order there was but this one clause to be observed: do what thou wilt. Yes, um, and it it struck me in the way it was presented as being related to I think it was the Heidelberg Disputation of Luther's. Um, where he he uttered the paradox the christian is the perfectly free lord of all subject to none the christian is the perfectly dutiful servant of all subject to all yes um, um and uh the the gentle listener can see me grinning as you say this because um the next thing i was going to read is screech's introduction to that chapter oh good um so what what screech does in his edition um essentially to avoid just what he describes as like masses and scads of footnotes i i paraphrase of course (laughs) um is he just writes even though the chapters themselves are very short he writes introductions to each of them and sometimes the introduction is a paragraph sometimes it's several paragraphs depending um but the introductions just kind of summarize all of what would otherwise get put in in footnotes and um so uh screech is following i think the numbering of the first edition of gargantua in which the chapter you just quoted michael is 55 um Mm -hmm. later editions probably the ones that urquhart is working from it's 57 um so uh so screech says the famous rule of the order of the thelemites contains only one clause do what thou wilt such a rule cannot apply to everyone. It is restricted to the well-born and well-bred who have a developed and trained cinderesses. Cinderesses is that guiding force of conscience which the weakened it's pronounced at the... Cinderella. Thank you. Uh, which the weakened at the fall was not obliterated by it and so can be cultivated. Um, so Screech says Rabelais calls it honor, but his definition of honor... Uh, is more like cinderellasis um and that honor is a is a term which all of rabelais readers would have understood where cinderesis is is not so i think the implication there is a that Mm. rabelais was using a a more technical definition but a less technical term to sort of Mm -hmm. communicate better with more readers um screech goes on to say uh pauline freedom releases men and women from the yoke of bondage the yugum servitutis uh from galatians 5 and galatians 4 christians are at liberty to do or not to do anything which is indifferent that is anything which of itself does not concern salvation he goes on to say the concept is central to lutheran theology so is the stoic lutheran paradox met here in thelame and in luther the christian is free and subject to no one the christian is most obliging the servant of all and subject to everyone there um, it is. 
So the, the Thelemites live in a harmony because they are freely obliging and willingly subject to each other in all matters good or indifferent. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I, I kind of I kind of wanted to uh, let you get there first if you were going to before I, I uh, quoted the authority here, Michael, and you did oblige me um, pretty well. I performed um, exactly the way you wanted I mean, Me I'm a performing monkey. You're you're just you're just you know freely and willingly submitting to be my servant. Um, it's true. It's true. Also, uh, go get me more coffee. Um, yeah. Okay, it'll be there soon. <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, like, it's it it is really. I I think I encountered, um, that that concept in luther he wrote a a work called i think it's a letter concerning christian freedom and that's like Mm -hmm. one of the the first things in that letter um i don't know if that's related to the heidelberg disputation if they're drafts of each other or something but uh there i mean there there are concepts that are interrelated right um yeah 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 so you know it's interesting like to when to our sort of uh 21st century especially american ears that whole idea of um this rule can't apply to everyone it's respect restricted to the well-born and well-bred you know that's like that's really grating that's like it's like a violin Mm -hmm. played off key to you know democratic ears but it's like you know democratic with a small d obviously um Mm. but it's like especially for the for the 16th century it's a really fascinatingly like um mm. fast again democratic with a small d fascinatingly democratic concept um in the sense that it's mm-hmm. it's very much eschewing um what i i like because i i can't like say anything in a serious way what i call the magic blood <laughs> um mm. you know that that idea from from like the divine right of kings or whatever that like certain bloodlines have an inherent intelligence or or sense of honor and others don't like education is something that like theoretically anyone could get so even though he's you know Rabelais talking about well-born mm-hmm. well-bred like he's talking about education and like you know the the idea whether you know again Rabelais scholars listening to this can disagree with me and say no Rabelais was a you know he was a an elitist through and through which you know could be true but like I don't know it's still it's it's interestingly not um reliant on like a divine right of kings or even like a like a papal kind of hierarchical structure necessarily Mm -hmm. um like that's all very interesting and it certainly you know echoes um and again you know the american founding fathers are not a lot of people's favorite these days either but like it echoes the original constitution of what a what a uh you know voting uh a citizen would have been you mm-hmm. know in the original republic as someone who among other things uh owned land and um you know well that sounds elitist and certainly was elitist in 
in a certain way, the rationale there was that, you know, people who own land are uh, probably sort of a, a responsible and, and um, certain level of intelligence and, and uh, things like that. So, like, there's a right. built-in level of responsibility you can be assumed to to have. Um, you know, again, like, 250 years later, like, we have a very different concept or conception of these things, um, you know, and, and uh, I'm not saying that's wrong, but mm-hmm. it's it's interesting how, like, how kind of democratic some of this is, you know, given that it's the the 1540s or whatever when this book first comes out um right yeah i don't know yeah well it's interesting too that um screech made mention of that um spark um, yeah that exists in at least that one the the higher classes right um and that's that's something that that luther and lutherans um denied completely um existed sorry say again um, what did what did luther and the spark do? that uh that can be cultivated oh of, yes like free will or or whatnot yes um that that has survived the fall that's that's something that's um that that the the lutheran reformation denied i mean possibly most vociferously in luther's the bondage of the will but it right. was all over the place too um yeah and and they especially denied it formula of concord and all that yes they um, especially denied it in the catholic conception that like that right. spark of you know goodness or or whatever is like somehow the thing that god like sees in us before saving us and you know it becomes mm-hmm. this very um uh synergistic thing that that ultimately to from the lutheran point of view denies grace and denies like the work Mm -hmm. of god to save us um it's it's that perspective in the catholic church that caused lutherans to to call many of the catholics um semi-pelagians right um talking about that um uh, synergy um, right that cooperation now Um, did you in what you just said, did you use the word cinderellasis? I did not. Okay, are you familiar uh, with that word? It's yes. Okay, so that is related. Like that's that's the same thing mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Okay, right. Because I think I think some later writers would probably argue that like conscience is different from some kind of divine spark. That it's it's something else, and that you know maybe it's yes more of a horizontal thing. But um. I'm going to uh, trust you on the the scholarship from from this period for sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Any other any other thoughts on that, Michael? I don't think so. Um, I, I think there there's certainly levels to look at here with this idea of um, uh, well, that synergesis and the um, synergy and the the free will and yeah. and all of that and and you know does it exist in everybody? Does it not exist in everybody? Does it exist in some people? Right. Um, yeah, and you know, yeah. it it would be if you were gonna buy that premise, you know, then your next question does become like, well, what is it? Is it magic blood? You know, is it the whatever it is that makes kings have a divine right to rule you know is is that related to this like yeah. some people are 
yeah. by by what we'd call now genetics, you know, um, better able mm-hmm. to rule over others. I think that like our reading of the the very beginning of Gargantua would um, be another thing that militates against that from Rabelais' perspective, just in the sure. sense that like, you know, I don't. Uh, uh he, he he literally says i think there are kings now who were are descended mm-hmm. from you know pot scrubbers and i think that um uh some some people who are now pot scrubbers might have their ancestors might have once been kings like he doesn't have he has kind of a democratizing view of such things i i mm-hmm. think it's you know you know i don't want to make too grand of like a like a extrapolation from it but i think it's the same kind of mindset that would you know when when abolition uh, abolitionism was coming into being would look at a black person and say like that's a human like anything you know that you can say besides that is just sort of you know you're you're getting lost in your own sort of need to justify the current order and i think there were people who Mm -hmm. you know I think a lot of the people who seem early, even Lawrence Stern, you know, has a passage in Tristram Shandy that I really love where, you know, he talks about like, how could you, basically, how could you look at, at a, at a person and not see them as one of God's children just because their skin happened to be a different color or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that there's a very, a similar impulse in Rabelais saying like, you know, I don't, it's not magic blood. This is just, you know, this is this is education. Um, He's just telling everybody you're trying too hard, <laughs> um. or or trying trying in the wrong way, which is yeah. arguably the same thing. Right, right. Um, yeah, I had another thought on that. Where'd it go? Where'd that thought go, Ethan? That's, it's behind it? you. Oh. Oh, now it's still behind. You Jeez. turned around, and now it's behind you. No, I turned again. Yeah. Oh man, I don't know if I'm gonna pin that one down um yeah uh i i think just the way that he treats everything pretty much so satirically mm-hmm. um tells me that the thelemites are are no different like it, it's i think a, an interesting set of layers of silliness um <laughs> And satire that the Thelemites themselves are satirizing certain things like monasticism, um, yeah, which was under fire from the Lutherans and and other reformers anyway. Um, yeah, but then like the way he treats the Thelemites as well is is satirical. I think in, in another layer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th- yeah, I think that the whole construction of the Abbey of Thelema is, is his, mm-hmm. you know, it almost is like if Luther wrote in a in a more sort of fictional satirical mode, um, he mm. might have produced not this exactly, but something like this, where you know you just produce a an abbey that's like the opposite of the thing that you're that you're making fun of or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't. Do you, do you feel like, I don't know, do you feel like the Thelemites are being made fun of also, as well as, um, as well as being used to make fun of others? To an extent, yes. Sure. Um, just, just by, by nature of that, 
that phrase of do do what thou wilt. I I don't think Rabelais taking that seriously. You don't think that if um, Rabelais himself were to found an abbey that this would be a real order that he would or no, a real no. foundational thing that he would do. You think that's like Yeah. I I think he's swinging to an extreme. Yeah. On on this. Um in and... a rhetorical extreme, not necessarily a yes. a, a real life extreme. No, no, yeah, sure. exactly, a rhetorical extreme, for sure. Yeah, I think that's a um, I think that's a valid reading in that, like, you know, he's not he's not uh, the the trap that you could fall into is assuming that he is correcting the excesses of real monasteries by positing what a good real monastery would look like, and I think that right probably it, I I think that is pretty valid to uh argue that instead he's just sort of showing the the thing he's satirizing by creating such a such an opposite such a foil mm-hmm. um where because yeah probably you know probably he's like uh you know responding to monasteries that had tons and tons of rules of which i know you know we know that there mm-hmm. were plenty of those by just saying there's oh, only yeah. one rule and it's do what you want you know, and like, right. let's see how Which that Which that works. itself is distilled after it starts out by uh, Gargantua is establishing this as being the opposite of all other monasteries, right? Which is right. which is part of where I'm getting this idea that he's just swinging to a polar opposite. Right. Um, you know, the, the vow of chastity is replaced by a vow that you'll be married. The vow of poverty is replaced by a vow that you'll be rich. Right. Um, and all, all those sorts of things, which that's silly. Yeah. Um, and then that gets distilled into this one rule of do what thou wilt. Right. So um, what you're saying is that Alistair Crowley pretty deeply misunderstood what was going on here when he high handedly stole the, the do what you do what thou wilt thing. And tried to make it a real, yeah, a real he, thing. He made himself a joke. Can I say that? I mean, that's like he 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 he, he lent himself straight into Rabelais' joke. <laughs> that doesn't from I I'm not I'm not a Crowley expert from but from what I do know, that doesn't seem wrong. It seems on Good. on brand. Right. It seems on track. That's yeah. Um, all right, Michael. Uh, there's one very last pretty pretty trivial thing i want to mention um before we call this episode quits uh was there anything any last thing you wanted to get in um that cannot wait till two weeks from now we can we can hit hit the other things i want to talk about at a later time another time all right um i just wanted to ask you about uh the very end of gargantua so again volume one and yours Uh, volume two in mine mm-hmm. i think it's probably chapter 58 in yours it's 56 in mine yes um this long poem uh mm-hmm. did you figure out either through your own cleverness or for through outside research what this poem is about i did not um and i'm gonna blame chapter two yes for that fact right um so I yeah no I read it and like it, it's it's more um intelligible than the poem of chapter two yes um but no I did not okay I did not uncover what it's talking about um I I just wanted to mention this be largely just because like when I read 
the Urquhart translation, I was so <laughs> mystified by what was going on here that I immediately <laughs> just hopped online and just demanded that Google explain this crap to me. Good, um, good. And eventually I, I found a thing that just directly explains what this poem oh, is Oh, fantastic. And um, so this is a type of poem that, according to Screech, it's an example of the enigmatic verse enjoyed during the Renaissance. Um, okay. And essentially, I, I, I was trying to see because I thought there was maybe a, a more specific title for this genre of poem. Um, basically, what what this is was it was it's sort of a, I guess it's on the order of a riddle is is the closest modern mm-hmm. genre, where what you're doing is you're taking something and describing it in terms that are excuse me wildly inappropriate to the subject matter usually mm-hmm. taking something pretty mundane and describing it in a very grandiose manner I, so i'm gonna quote just some lines from screech's translation of this poem that i think are representative um because it's you know it's a three-page poem i don't want to quote the whole thing here but um and then i'll tell you what's going on so uh okay. the sun before it shines in occident will let the darkness circle it round Deep as eclipse or veiled night's daily round. So at one blow twill lose its liberty, favors from heavens from heaven and the sun's clarity. But at the least abandoned shall it be, and well before its downfall shall we see. Such that Mount Etna, like sho- like shock, had not known, when by that son of Titan she was thrown. Nor yet more sudden, though it does resemble the motion which in a rim made tremble when Tiaphus to such a range did fly that mountains toppled to the sea from high. Uh, and soon hmm. it shall to all appear so battered that change will be for fresh ones undis- unbespattered. Um, skipping down a little bit. Nevertheless, before away all go, there will be felt in clean air all aglow the violent heat of a great searing flame which ends the floods and also ends men's game. So this is a description of a tennis match. Got it. Um, and so, yeah, that's the whole game was just to describe a tennis match in like as apocalyptic and like, you know, either twilight of the gods or revelation of St. John kinds of terms as possible. Um, okay. Now I personally. That, like Gargantua says that like interprets it that way um does he oh is that just yep. in wait mm-hmm. this is the last paragraph um oh yeah that's the... why i that's okay i lied about going on the internet i just what i what i think happened is like you just kept reading i got so <laughs> mystified by this poem that i kept reading it and rereading it and didn't read that last paragraph until after i was like super frustrated and had given up and then i was like it." Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm feeling embarrassed about the fact that I didn't point that out when you asked me if I figured out what it meant <laughs> either. I mean, but, you know, I'm gonna. I, I I guess I was thinking you were talking about some deeper allusions and yeah stuff in there. That's that's <laughs> but, fair. I did, you know, I set it up that way because again, I'm now embarrassed because I forgot that that's right there and that's where I got that information from. Um. Yeah. I was I I was gonna let you go in the same way I, I will let myself go and say that like 
this book is 788 fart jokes long so like there's a lot going on <laughs> um uh, yes. that's a yes. something i forget if i if if it stayed in uh my edit of the table setting episode but that is something that sarah said uh during that episode mm-hmm. anyway um yeah book of 788 fart jokes yes um so that said i think we're gonna we're gonna end on that note and just sit in our embarrassment these next two weeks um on that brown note thank you uh (laughs) so no one lost um marking a second notch in the belt of michael uh choosing not to be my servant and um uh take one for the team as as luther said um (laughs) <laughs> but you know here, here we are uh so that said verbatim luther take one for the team uh, um thank you for listening gentle listener please uh continue to read along with us um give us your feedback about the show about your thoughts about any of the books about whatever um you can do that Mm -hmm. in the contact section of tapestryradio.org go ahead and put scotch talk in the subject line um you can get us at room with scotch on twitter uh michael are you on twitter i am on twitter i'm at m-g-l-i-l-i-e-n-t-h-a-l very good you can join us in the tapestry radio tap house on facebook uh request to join we'll let you in unless you are a sophist um <laughs> i recently heard someone say that calling someone a, a sophist was like just a generic insult that could be leveled at anyone i mean that, that seems agreed with that seems right it certainly was true in like the renaissance right and in the classical world and in the medieval world mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. um yes sophist well you know uh if you want uh us to do some of your homework um we will not do it well uh you will not get a good grade if you turn in our version but we will have fun um you can do that mm-hmm. at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast there is a form if you like this show um go ahead and listen to our other tapestry radio network shows we have intermission our backstage audio drama podcast uh us play fiasco fiasco uh rpg improv real play podcast we have Freddy Goes to mm-hmm. a Podcast, where three grown men read the Freddy the Pig book series and discuss it. And we have Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Um, thank you, Michael. Uh, <laughs> Michael gave me a thumbs up, the nicest thing he's done for me in years. Um, <laughs> anything else, Michael? No. Uh, so then until next time. Uh, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if we forgot that Gargantua said the thing that we thought we were being clever about. <laughs> or the internet was being clever about. Yes. Okay, bye! <laughs> bye! <laughs> oh. Obscurantism and Obfuscation, 
orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.